Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. My name is Austin Stewart with the Michigan Opera Theater. This Opera Here podcast is here to give you the inside scoop of the opera production scene on stage at Michigan Opera Theater, to dive into some of the stories, get to know the characters, and learn a little bit about what happens behind the scenes with some guest artists that visit us here in the studio. We're thankful to WDET and to Jake Neer for their help in producing the Opera Here podcast along with Michigan Opera Theater. Today we're talking about Giacomo Puccini's Tosca from 1900. Tosca begins early in the evening on the 17th of June, 1800, at the church of Sant'Andrea della Valle. Angelotti, an escaped prisoner, has just taken refuge in a side chapel of the church. An elderly sacristan comes to tidy up, followed by Cavaradossi, a painter who is at work on a portrait of the Madonna. Cavaradossi compares his Madonna's blonde hair, blue-eyed charm with the dark beauty of his love, the famous singer Floria Tosca. Angelotti emerges from the chapel to find Cavaradossi, a political ally who promises to help his friend escape from Rome. Angelotti hides again at the sound of Tosca's voice from outside. Tosca jealously demands to know why the door was locked and the secret whisper she heard from the other side. Cavaradossi reassures her, and they join in a passionate duet. Once Tosca has gone, Angelotti reappears, and he and Cavaradossi plan his flight. A cannon shot from the Castel Sant'Angelo announces the discovery of Angelotti's escape, and Cavaradossi and Angelotti leave the church. The sacristan enters, followed by clerics and choir boys, all excited by rumors of Bonaparte's defeat. The Baron Scarpia, the chief of police, arrives with his henchman Spoletta in search of the escaped prisoner. Tosca returns, and Scarpia plays upon Tosca's jealousy in hopes of discovering Angelotti's whereabouts. When she leaves to seek her lover, Scarpia has her followed. As the crowd intones the Te Deum, Scarpia vows to bring Cavaradossi to the gallows and Tosca into his arms. Act two takes place in the private chambers of the Baron Scarpia at the Palazzo Farnese, later that evening. Alone at dinner, Scarpia reviews his plot. Spoletta reports that he and his men trailed Tosca to the villa and found no trace of Angelotti but placed Cavaradossi under arrest. He is brought in for questioning. Scarpia has sent likewise for Tosca, and she enters as Cavaradossi is taken away to be tortured. Upon hearing his anguished cries, Tosca reveals Angelotti's hiding place. Cavaradossi is dragged into the study. His anger at Tosca's betrayal turns to joy when Sharone announces that Bonaparte has actually defeated Melas at Marengo. A cry from Cavaradossi, Victoria, victory, enrages Scarpia, and he sends Cavaradossi back to his cell. Tosca asks the price of her lover's freedom. Scarpia will accept only Tosca's submission. She sobs to herself in a celebrated aria, Visi d'arte. She has devoted her life to music and piety. Why does God repay her with such misery? As she struggles to free herself from Scarpia's embrace, Boletta enters with the news that Angelotti has killed himself rather than be arrested. Of shame, Tosca signals that she will give to the Baron, on condition that Cavaradossi be set free at once. He explains that he cannot grant a pardon, he can only release Cavaradossi by faking his death in a mock execution. She demands that Scarpia provide a note of safe conduct for herself and Cavaradossi. 
While he is writing, Tosca catches sight of a sharp knife on the dinner table, and unnoticed takes it. Scarpia seals the note, then turns eagerly to embrace the trembling diva. She cries, plunging the knife deep into his heart. Questo di bacia di Tosca, this is Tosca's kiss. Scarpia cries out for help and Tosca curses him. She takes the safe conduct pass and slips out of the room. Act 3 takes place atop the Castel Sant'Angelo at dawn the following day. Soldiers bring Cabradosi to the ramparts of the fortress. He reflects on his love for Tosca in Elocevan le Stelle. Tosca rushes in with the note of safe conduct and the story of Scarpia's violent death. Cabradosi praises her courage, saying that her gentle hands were not meant for murder. Tosca instructs him in the plan of the feigned execution. After the gunshots, he is to lie still until she gives him a signal. Though she believes the execution to be a farce, Tosca is filled with anxiety as her lover is led before the soldiers. They fire and Cavaradosi falls to the ground. Tosca screams, Questo an artista, what an artist! She then whispers to him to remain motionless until everyone has gone. At last she tells him that it is safe, but he does not respond. With a piercing scream, Tosca realizes Scarpia's final deceit. She weeps over Cavaradosi's as Spoletta and Sharone, having found the Baron murdered, burst in to arrest her. Too quick for them, she runs to a parapet, shouts, O Scarpia, avanti a Dio, O Scarpia, we shall meet before God, and throws herself from the top of the ramparts. I'm joined here in the studio today by Miss Diane Schaaf. Hi, Diane. Hello. It's great to have you here today. So great to be here. So this is, by and large, probably my favorite opera. Uh-oh. Which is... We're in for it today. Which oh, You are in for it. Um, which is something that, you know, you always want to be careful to admit with Tosca. <laughs> um, because, Why? well, this work, um, though it's uh, a searing, fast-paced thriller, yeah. um, it is not always highly respected in the realm of music critics and historians mm. and mm. even um, directors Hmm. So it's been it's been work that's challenged a lot of people over the years. Um, there's a notorious quote um, about Tosca that Joseph Kerman wrote in his book Opera as Drama, um, in which he called Tosca a shabby little shocker. Oh my! Oh my. So it's kind of like the daytime soaps. It's Is that uh, what you're saying? <laughs> Well, and it's and it's sure it's a little shabby. Yeah, it's definitely a shocker. And little, no way. Um, This is Puccini's most grandiose production in terms of the number of forces that are required on stage, in the orchestra, um, the breadth of scenery that is required to bring all of the locations in this opera to life. So uh, it is is in no way little, um, but it is definitely a shocker, and it keeps you always kind of guessing at uh, what's the next dalliance or what's the next plot that's yeah. going to be hatched on either side? Even no matter how far-fetched it might seem, you're waiting with bated breath for the... Always. Yeah. For the next... For the next Tantalizing ex- morsel. <laughs> so the story focuses around three characters. The first of these is a character by the name of Floria Tosca. She is 
as a character, an opera singer. In the original play by Vittorian Sardou, we learn much about Tosca's background. She was raised as a shepherd herd, so she was um, a peasant in her youth. And then the beauty of her voice was discovered by some Benedictines. And then she was brought into a convent. She was taught to sing. And then the Pope heard her sing and decided that the voice was so beautiful that that she should be released from her vows so that she can pursue um, an opera career and take her piety into the world of the profane operatic world. So Floria Tosca is is a performer herself, um, and she's a consummate diva. Um, She's a diva both in the Sardou play, meaning she is a diva in in her everyday life. And she is also um, very used to playing divas on stage. On stage, right, inhabiting them. Yeah, it's it's Uh unclear when she's necessarily acting and being a little excessively melodramatic. A a shepherdess, like... Hmm. A shepherdess by birth. By birth, but she's left that behind. But now she's kind of just made a a great name for herself in the world. And so Tosca is a part of this great 19th century diva worship that happened around the world when singers like Adelina Patti or even in the United States here, Emma Abbott, um, were all just regaled as these great unattainable goddesses um, for their voice, for their looks. She does have also the diva temperament. Right? She does. She's Which is, highly suspicious. Right. There's this, uh, f- uh, you know, fantastic psychological study of that as well. Like, you know, here's a shepherdess and now she's on stage all the time and revered for this fancy talent thing that she has in her neck. <laughs> you know, And her then being able to uh, judge what's real and what's not real and what's hers and what's not hers. It's a It's a very fascinating sort of study, I think, of what it means to be famous from such uh, humble beginnings, too. And what you said about real and not real, I think that that's something very special about her as well, because she's not an ingenue. Uh -uh. Um, She's not just coming off of her quinceanera. Right. She's been around. She has had a lot of hard knocks in life, a very difficult childhood. I mean, to be a shepherd going into a convent, quite possibly an orphan. Right. So she's this very complex character who who seems, you know, that she's kind of putting off this hyper flamboyant, suspicious attitude from time to time, but she's a very real world individual. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. Um, and she's yeah. very smart. She wants to be honest. She is honest. She is pious in her own ways. Right. But um, she's also not going to be walked all over. Right. Which is the great thing about her character. Right. A woman with power? What? Indeed. The next character is Tosca's lover, um, the Cavalier Mario Cavradossi. Now, he is a painter and a revolutionary with Bonapartist sympathies. Mm. Cavradossi has very little patience for religious, church, and state authorities. He really is um, an independent revolutionary right out of the 18th century in his own way. He's actually Parisian because every revolutionary is Parisian, naturally. Mm-hmm. It's French. <laughs> no, no. Um, and he's a painter, so yeah. he's got to be from 
Paris. And we're explained um, a little bit in snippets in the opera, but more so in Sardou's play, that he is a mother of French origin, a father of Mm. Italian origin, and he's back in Italy now, having settled the estate of his father, but while he was here, he conveniently fell in love with Floria Tosca. There you go. So he's staying around a little bit longer to get to know her. And he is every bit in love with Tosca. Um, This is a true passion that he feels for her. Now, I um, have a bit of an embarrassing Uh story to share. When I was 14, I got a hamster. Oh. And (laughs) I named the hamster Cavaradossi. Oh. Because, as I mentioned, I have been obsessed with this opera for a very long time. Very long time. So Cavaradossi lived a long life. Requiescat in pace. Um, he, he, he went through many hands in our family and was a good pet, but, um, he did not meet the same fate as Cavradossi. He died a natural death. That is good to Um, know. Yes. It was, he was very peaceful, but. Did he paint? He did not paint. However, there was, yeah, there was, (laughs) um, at the back of his crate, there was a print off of one of my favorite sets of Tosca (laughs) from that act one. So... This story is far too embarrassing to probably be sharing. But definitely, yeah, so, definitely. But um, I love it. I love it. So the, the memory of Cavaradossi lives on. We're truly in for it, people. Yeah. All right. <laughs> the last really significant character in this um, kind of triangle, um, although it's by no means a love triangle, is the Baron Scarpia. Scarpia. Scarpia is uh, the despised, depraved, bigot, uh, satyr, chief of police uh, for mm, mm, the city mm, of Rome. Mm. Um, he's a hypocrite, mm. he's perverted, um, and is every bit uh, an attempted rapist on the part of his, his solo scenes with Tosca. So he's the despised villain. He's probably the best villain. I mean, best in terms of in greatness of villainry. Is that is that villainy? 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 Villainry? Villain? I, I don't know, but he bad. His his greatness <laughs> of villainy is unprecedented in opera. Maybe maybe only next to Don Giovanni, but maybe. But is, even yeah, right? No, Scarpia is terrible. So those are our three main characters: Floria Tosca, Mario Cavallarossi, and Baron Scarpia. Tosca is one of the works that truly defines an era of opera referred to as Verismo. Verismo came about in the 1870s and really was marked at first by Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana and Puccini's Boheme, Puccini's Tosca, and Madama Butterfly are all examples of this style of opera referred to as Verismo. All that verismo means is truth to life, in essence. Puccini is interested in writing works that are about true, everyday, present, um, nowadays characters. He wants to contend with the world as it is in his time. And he does this in... A couple of very brilliant ways. The first deals with the time and place of Tosca. This is one of the few operas 
that can be set to a specific time and place. Right. June 17th, 1800 in Rome, the night of the Battle of Marengo. Yeah. When Bonaparte's troops took the city and the Roman Republic fell and the Roman state fell. And the sounds of Rome at this time are throughout the entire work. The opening of the opera has these chords, which are used throughout to mark Scarpia. Oh, finalmente, nel terror mi ha stolto, vede a ceffi di birra ogni volta. So the opera begins, even though he's not going to appear on the stage for 20 minutes, 25 minutes still. The opera is actually marked with his musical idea at the very beginning. Marked. Marked. Like territory. Exactly. Oh, that's Scarpy. He's terrible. All right. These chords are then juxtaposed with this jarring, syncopated, very frenetic musical idea that's associated with Angelotti the escaped former tribune of the Roman Republic. A silly old sacristan enters. His music is marked by um, a, a twitch that Puccini wrote that he had, and you can hear his line kind of echoing, or hiccuping rather, in this musical idea. The sacristan was supposed to be helping Mario Cavradossi paint a picture of Mary Magdalene on one of the church walls, but he's late getting there, um, and so he apologizes to Cavradossi, but then realizes that Cavradossi himself isn't even there. So the sacristan starts to uh, look about the room. He finds that the painter's lunch basket has not been touched, and at that point, we have the first intrusion, the first moment when musical sounds from the outside world come in. And this is the first tolling of bells, and it sends the sacristan into reciting the Angelus prayer. Angelus Domini Nunciabit Maria. Cabrodosi then enters and interrupts the sacristan's prayer very gruffly. He mounts the scaffold, unveiling this portrait of Mary Magdalene that he has been working on. 
The sacristan is scandalized because he recognizes that the woman in the painting is a woman who has been praying very regularly in one of the chapels. Mario then asks the sacristan to hand him his colors, and he looks upon the face of Mary Magdalene while mixing colors on the palette. Then he stops to take out a miniature photo of his, from his pocket, which is Floria Tosca. So in this moment, he compares the beauty of Tosca to the beauty of this painting of the Magdalena, or really the Marchese Atavanti that he's been working on. He notes that Tosca, his lover, has brown hair and that her eyes are deep black and that this unknown beauty, the Magdalena that he's painting, is blonde and Mm blue-eyed. Well, this is funny because this will become quite a point of contention between Cavaradossi and Tosca later on. In this aria, Mario is saying that art blends all beauties, uh, that it doesn't matter if one has black hair or blonde hair, black eyes or blue eyes, that in art we're all ennobled and made more beautiful in the eyes of our artists and of those who experience experience the art. Exactly. The sacristan, however, is very concerned about uh, this profane, sacred mixing and advises uh, Cavaradossi to keep his toys to himself and to not mess with the saints. Oh my. And so he mutters this under his breath. While this is a somewhat comic aside, it actually points to a bigger thematic problem in the work which is the mixing of sacred and profane, the dispute between church and state. There's also at the beginning of the third act um, a shepherd boy that comes in. Now, this is a moment of kind of whimsical pastoralism in Tosca. It's set, you know, within this city. um, But one can imagine that still in 1800 Rome, you know, it wasn't too far to the nearest meadows outside of the walls. And so this shepherd boy, I think, is a, is a wonderful tribute to that pastoralism. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a nice hearkening back because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we're, maybe we're hearing echoes of young Tosca with the tenderness of that music, of the naivete, um, and just the general love and affection for caring for others, yeah. which even though she's sometimes jealous— Tosca cares 
right. passionately. Right. But is perfectly illustrated, you know, utilizing the shepherd boy as this sort of pinnacle of her past, of her innocence lost, her, you know, former former life. I think that's that's an interesting way. And then you don't have to dilute Tosca herself, really, mm. um, because we have this reference. That's kind of interesting. Absolutely, yeah. She she can remain the fully developed Tosca, developed, yeah, worldly, yeah, uh, smart. She doesn't have to kind of go back to any of that. She and she never does. She never yeah. goes back to. She doesn't ever curl up in a ball, right? She has Visi Darte, um, her great aria, but that's that's lamentive. Right. That's not interior. That's not. You know, kind of folding into herself. That's that's just agony. Yeah. And depending on how it's staged, you know, there's there's always a tradition with the role that somewhere in the tussle between Scarpia and Tosca, she's fallen to the floor and she delivers that aria right from Flat the floor. floor. Yeah. But you know, Callis yep. would go center stage yep. to the big X right in front of the prompter's bar box. And she would sing Visi Darte full out, no sense of of the desolation. I mean, right. it was it was in every way it was an anthem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was an anthem of the diva, which I, I so appreciate Callas's rendition of that mm. of that aria, specifically not as not as this kind of interior pained thing it's very anguished but rather is like I'm here I've made my life about art I've made my life about love and I've done nothing to deserve any of this but this is just what happens sometimes when tyrants get their way awful 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 So remind me again, why is this your favorite opera? 
Tell me again. Is it the Verismo aspects or is it the 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 Verismo aspects and the way that Puccini has brought in like things like the bells of the town and the real live cantata music and the shepherd boy? Or, I mean, is it the combination of those things? It feels like the characters are a little, I mean, they're not fully fleshed out. There's only so much time we can get, right? We kind of know things about them, but... We've got evil, oh, but we get we've got so love, much. right, we in just so the things. We get so much from the little we do know about them. Yes. And we get even more from Puccini's music. Right. You know, we we get very small little snippets, like in the first act when yeah. Tosca and Cavaradossi are talking and they're making plans, you know, for Stasera. Right. We'll meet right. Stasera, uh, Tosca says. And Cavaradossi is kind of taken aback by this because he knows that now Angelotti is, like, waiting for his help. And so in the moment between Tosca saying, let's meet tonight at your home, and Mario saying, oh, tonight, mm-hmm. we hear Angelotti's music. And so we get this snap. We get these four notes from the woodwinds Wonderful. of Angelotti is clearly on Cavaradossi's mind. mind. Uh-huh. So that's just one of hundreds, literally hundreds of examples where Puccini uses these musical ideas that yeah. he's built throughout yeah. the work yeah. uh, to really draw together yeah. so much of the of the internal characterization of these of these people right and and that's that's the thing because i i think that these are true people yeah uh, right and that's why it makes it verismo yeah big, right they, they all exist they, they all still do exist right yes um these they sure are, are archetypes and to a, a greater or lesser extent stereotypes even that uh, we do or don't want to acknowledge, but this goes to something very real and raw that is still, uh, you know, dealing with corruption, tyrants, um, and the difficulty of opposing tyrants. Right. That's what Tosca's about. Yes, there's this great love that's at the middle of it, and I right. try not to overshadow, you know, the love between Tosca and Cavaradossi with all of the political turmoil and such, but... It's very present. Yeah. Well, and that power play, I mean, I think that's this, you know, a story, as as is love, you know, a story that's told through time and in all different ways. Uh, here is also a power play that is told repeatedly um, and that has been going on since the dawn of time with the character of Scarpia and Tosca. You know, he walks around marking his territory with three chords and tries to also own this opera, even though their love is braided throughout. And, you know, he tries to wield his power over over Tosca as well to get, you know, his corrupt, profane desires met. Um, and, I, and I guess I would say that that's, you know, very important. What you said about Scarpia is... And his villainy, his tyranny, is defining everything about this story. I wonder whether it was just a matter of course 
that this was present specifically in the case of, you know, this domineering tyrant of Scarpia who is using almost almost as if it's his, you know, palette of paint his you know evil ways to to main, to get what he wants and what he desires and to meet his profane awfulness whether whether puccini is just writing him in as a matter of course like this person exists let's be honest about it or whether he's saying something about that person i don't know i think it's very interesting to to look at these themes as they've come across over the years and then for us in today's society to kind of go like, oh, well, we're just hearing about. Well, no, we know this exists. We have known this exists. Mm-hmm. We've, you know, accepted it in, in art <laughs> over 100 years ago. Like there wasn't any outrage at the character of Scarpia. It was almost right. accepted as, you know, of course he's the guy. Of course there's an, an evil villain. And, and to... Let it go uncommented, uh, to let it go by un, undiscussed. That ain't right. And, I, and I'm hoping that, you know, by seeing some of these historical examples of these stories, that we can open these kinds of conversations and say, yeah, this has going, been going on for a long time and it's, not, it's still not okay. <laughs> the other thing that's coming to me right now, as, as, you know, this is now our third meeting about the operas that MOT is putting on this year, here we have yet another woman undone mm-hmm. by the powers that be. I'm poor Gilda. Poor Gilda. Susanna. Susanna. Ah, the, the evils of the the play th- the playthings of evil men. The playthings of men in power. And Tosca too, totally a plaything of Scarpia. Mm. Uh and Tossed and turned. Kind of gives another sense of meaning to what the sacristan says. Yes. Early on about play with toys, but leave the saints alone. Leave the saints alone. And and maybe that's a direction for the men in this story to respect the person, respect the fortitude and the individualism of Tosca. Mm. Mm. Is Tosca martyred? Ooh, I don't know. (laughs) Thank you, Diane, for joining me today to discuss Puccini's Tosca. My pleasure. It's great to have you in studio again. I'm Austin Stewart from Michigan Opera Theatre. Thanks to our producer, Jake Neer, and to the studios at WDET. Look forward to seeing you at MOT's production of Tosca, playing April 7th through 15th, 2018. And we'll see you at the opera. (laughs) ¶¶